0: The Virtue of Discretion When the rules break down, you must judge what to do on your own. Discretion is necessary for navigating the muddle of life. Just the one, Sister Gertrude, a Benedictine nun at Moretzis Abbey, Belgium, December 8, 2021. Photo by Johanna Jaren slash Reuters It is midday, the sixth hour, sometime between Easter and Pentecost, at a Benedictine monastery, and the monks are gathered for the main meal of the day. It could be any century between the sixth and the twenty-first, and anywhere from southern Italy to South Korea. Although each monastery is autonomous, governed by its abbot, the order prescribed by the rule of Saint Benedict regulates every particular of the proceedings. The monks eat in silence, except for the sound of biblical passages read aloud for their edification. Fair and portions are specified in detail, two cooked meals, no meat, one pound of bread, and a cup of wine daily, no more, no less. Every aspect of life is stipulated, how and when the monks may sleep, all in one room, dressed and belted, with a light burning all night, the order in which the Psalms are to be sung each day, with an added hallelujah, between Easter and Pentecost, clothing, two tunics and two cowls, plus shoes and socks for the monks who work in the fields, Bed linens: one mat, sheet, blanket and pillow per monk, when to get up and when to go to bed. If micromanagers have a patron saint, it is surely Saint Benedict. Yet each of the seventy-three chapters that make up the rule of Saint Benedict foresees exceptions and mitigating circumstances that may soften the apparently rigid order. The monks may not eat the flesh of four-footed animals unless the abbot grants permission to the weak and sick who need stronger sustenance. Silence reigns at meals unless the abbot gives permission to entertain a guest with conversation. Monks are allowed one hemina, around half a pint, of wine and not one drop more, unless they have labored all day under the hot summer sun. Private possessions are forbidden, no book, no writing tablet, no stylus, nothing whatsoever, unless the abbot wills otherwise. No precept is so rigid that it cannot be bent if the abbot judges that circumstances warrant an exception, it all depends. The abbot's discretion does not contradict the rule of Saint Benedict, it is the rule. Discretion is the faculty of it all depends. When a general rule collides with recalcitrant particulars, it is discretion that sorts out the resulting muddle. No rule can encompass all the situations to which it may have to be applied, and the shuffle of human affairs is constantly dealing as wild cards. Even in the ordered world of the Benedictine monastery, circumstances fluctuate. One reason why the rule of St. Benedict has survived for so many centuries in so many places is its flexibility. In contrast with the short lives of so many other would-be utopias and ideal communities, which rarely last for more than a single generation, the rule of St. Benedict, originally composed for Benedict's own monastic community in Monte Cassino in southern Italy in the early 6th century C, still provides the blueprint of the organization of Benedictine monasteries all over the world, as it has for 1,500 years. Not for nothing does St. Benedict call discretion the mother of all virtues. When universal rule and particular situation don't align, it's discretion that leaps into the breach. We couldn't live without it. And yet we're uncomfortable living with it. We like our rules clear-cut and unambiguous, and above all consistently applied. We equate rules applied the same way to all people in all situations with equality and predictability, to cardinal virtues of the rule of law. Exceptions immediately trigger suspicions of special pleading, unfair treatment, or wanton caprice. The power to exercise discretion, whether in the court, the classroom, or a government office, invites gimlet-eyed scrutiny for the least sign of abuse or simple error. Distrust shadows discretion like a private eye shadowing a suspect, just waiting to catch the culprit red-handed. As a result, discretion has been driven underground, still in constant but now clandestine operation. It's become the indispensable faculty that dare not speak its name. How did this happen? The decline in the fortunes of discretion is part of the history of rules. That history is long and labyrinthine, and rules have always meant many things the rules of arithmetic calculation, of games, of warfare, of cookbooks, of parliamentary procedure, of traffic, of musical composition, of marriage and divorce, of spelling, and on and on. There is no known human culture without rules, and almost no human activity that slips through the tightly woven mesh of rules. But amid this dazzling diversity and ubiquity, we can make out two broad categories thick rules and thin ones. The rule of St. Benedict is a sterling example of how thick rules and discretion work hand-in-hand. Thick rules announce a directive about how or how not to behave, clearly and succinctly, but then they go on to fatten that precept with examples, exceptions and appeals to experience, call them the three Xs. For example, an early 18th-century treatise on siege warfare contains what sounds like a self-evident rule always attack the enemy's stronghold at its weakest point. But exceptions immediately follow, if a good paved road that made the transport of heavy cannons and munitions easier led to a stronger part of the fortifications, then the attack should begin there instead. Take another obvious sounding rule from a 17th century handbook on how to play various games, in chess, don't sacrifice a piece worth more for one worth less. Yet in the next breath comes an exception, should your adversary seem to have a penchant for playing a particular piece, say, a knight, then you should do your utmost to put the knight out of commission, including sacrificing a piece of higher value, say, your bishop, in order to discombobulate your opponent and gain a psychological advantage. Thick rules are learned by example and from experience, and they are constantly being stretched by exceptions, the three Xs, and perhaps a fourth X, for extenuating circumstances. These are part and parcel of the rule itself, the woolly coat that cushions the rule against unforeseen circumstances. A thick rule requires discretion to follow, the ability to discern among cases that may, at first glance, seem alike, for example, what the monks will be served for dinner, but, in fact, differ in significant respects, for example, this monk is strong and healthy, and that one is sick and weak. But what exactly is discretion, how does it work, and who is qualified to exercise it? As a practical tool, discretion has two sides one cognitive and the other executive. Both are displayed to good advantage in the abbot's role as described in the Rule of St. Benedict. To be able to distinguish between cases that differ from one another in small but crucial details is the essence of the cognitive aspect of discretion, an ability that exceeds mere analytical acuity. Discretion draws additionally upon the wisdom of experience, which teaches which distinctions make a difference in practice, not just in principle. A hypertrophy of hair-splitting is the besetting sin of scholasticism, and a mind that makes too many distinctions risks pulverizing all categories into the individuals that compose them, ultimately requiring as many rules as there are cases. In contrast, discretion preserves the classificatory scheme implied by rules, in the case of the rule of St. Benedict, categories such as mealtimes or work assignments, but draws meaningful distinctions within those categories, the sick monk who needs heartier nourishment, the weak monk who needs a helping hand on kitchen duty. What makes these distinctions meaningful is a combination of experience, which positions discretion in the neighborhood of prudence and other forms of practical wisdom and certain guiding values. In the case of the Benedictine monastery, these are the Christian values of compassion and charity, in the case of legal decisions, these may be values of fairness or social justice or mercy. Discretion combines intellectual and moral cognition. But discretion goes beyond cognition. The abbot's discernment would count for naught if he could not act upon those meaningful distinctions. The executive side of discretion, already present in the rule of Saint Benedict, implies the freedom and power to enforce the insights of the cognitive side of discretion. Discretion is a matter of the will as well as the mind. By the late 17th century, in the work of liberal political theorists such as John Locke, executive discretion would come to be tarred with the same brush as arbitrary caprice, a sign that the cognitive and executive sides of discretion had begun to split apart. The practical wisdom of those exercising power no longer commanded trust and therefore undermined the legitimacy of their prerogatives. Without its cognitive side, the executive powers of discretion became suspect. The history of the English word discretion roughly parallels this evolution. Originally imported from the Latin via French, discretion, in the 12th century, the meanings of discretion relating to cognitive discernment and to executive freedom coexist peacefully from at least the late 14th century. However, while the cognitive meanings are now listed as obsolete, the executive meanings endured, becoming increasingly controversial, as every contemporary argument about the abuse of the discretionary powers of the courts, the schools, the police or any other authority testifies. Cognitive discretion without executive discretion is impotent, executive discretion without cognitive discretion is arbitrary. Executive discretion, that sovereign prerogative to decide without further justification, has lost much of its legitimacy. Just as liberal political theorists of the Enlightenment contrasted the rule of law with the rule of persons, so today's liberal polities contrast the allegedly subjective exercise of discretion to the objective application of hard and fast rules, for example, leaving the sentencing of a convicted criminal up to the judge, versus specifying mandatory sentences for crimes. Injustices can and do result in both scenarios. But, in fact, discretion straddles the line between the subjective and objective, it is subjective in that it depends on personal acuity and experience, it is objective in that it can be upheld by reasons and arguments accessible to all. The more the cognitive side of discretion is denied, the less pressure to appeal to public reason and the greater the risk of unbridled caprice, a self-fulfilling prophecy. The suspicion that dog's discretion in many modern societies is aimed at both its cognitive and executive aspects. On the cognitive side, discretion seems opaque, akin to darkling intuition and therefore irredeemably subjective. We exercise discretion all the time, but we can't give rules for how we do it, at least, not the kind of rules now generally recognized to be such. On the executive side, egalitarian democratic polities are wary of all authority that might privilege one individual or group above another and therefore restrict authority by rules, notably laws and bureaucratic procedures. Once again, discretion seems unruly by these standards and therefore no better than a personal whim. What all reservations about discretion share is the equation of public reason and public right with rules. But what kind of rules? Evidently not the thick rules of the rule of St. Benedict. It's time to turn to thin rules. Thin rules are transparent, clear-cut, unelaborated. In contrast to the woolly thick rules, thin rules are shorn of all mention of examples, exceptions, and experience. They do not anticipate the unforeseen nor do they allow any latitude for discretion, indeed, they are often expressly designed to minimize discretion, for example, the rules that dictate stopping at a red light, or paying for an item in a store before pocketing it, or limiting the amount of carry-on luggage for airplane passengers. Ideally, thin rules can be executed mechanically, whether by actual machines or humans expected to perform as routinely as machines. Thin rules can be qualitative as well as quantitative, long and detailed or short and lapidary, the rules for finding the square root of a given number, for crossing streets only at intersections, and for paying train fares are all thin rules. Thin rules and thick rules have both existed since antiquity, and they can both flourish under different kinds of polities, albeit for different reasons, a democracy may favor thin rules in the name of equality, while a dictatorship may use them to curtail freedom. Wherever thin rules emerge, they presuppose a world without surprises. If thick rules err on the side of ambiguity, thin rules tend toward rigidity. The thinnest rules of all are algorithms, a word that takes its name from the Latinist version of the 9th-century CE Persian mathematician Al khwarizmi and originally referred to the four basic operations of arithmetic, addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. In our world, the prototypical thin rules are computer algorithms, and their strengths and weaknesses dramatize those of all thin rules. In 2018, a pedestrian crossing a four-lane road in Arizona was struck and killed by an Uber self-driving car. The car's software had not anticipated that pedestrians would cross anywhere except at an intersection, much less that they might be pushing prams or, as in this case, wheeling a bicycle, baffling the pedestrian recognition software. It is worth stepping back from this tragic accident for a moment to reflect on what it would take to make the world safe for, or, rather, safe from, algorithms that cannot adjust to unforeseen circumstances, in other words, cannot exercise the judgment required to mold universal rules to recalcitrant particulars. The algorithm-proof world would resemble a vast swathe of frozen porridge, or perhaps large stretches of Nebraska, in which every place is much like any other and nothing ever happens. The choice, then, is not between thick and thin rules, we need both the resilience of thick rules and the predictability of thin ones. The challenge is to map out the territories where each works best, identifying patches of high and low variability, and designing rules accordingly. Where stability and reliability reign, rules can be as thin and unforgiving as a designer dress, where there is considerable fluctuation and variability, thick rules build in room for discretion, like elasticized sweatpants. But in an age entranced by the prospect of total predictability and control, and skeptical about the legitimacy of discretion in any realm, this mapping exercise presupposes a re-examination of the possible and the desirable. We do not live in a world without surprises. But would we want to? Judgment, especially that form of judgment known as discretion, was made to deal with situations of high variability and unpredictability. Historically, discretion was rule-governed, but by thick rules rather than thin ones. As we've seen in the case of the rule of St. Benedict, thick rules anticipated the mismatch between universals and particulars in ways that thin rules, crafted for a world of punctual trains and just-in-time supply chains, do not. But although our world is less variable and more predictable than the world of St. Benedict, it is not yet the frozen world of the algorithms. And as long as universals can be ambushed by unforeseen particulars, discretion will have to come to the rescue. The only question is whether it does so furtively and secretly or openly, once again recognized and respected as a form of public reason. Virtues and Vices, History of Ideas, Fairness and Equality Syndicate this essay, slash syndication, article underscore slug equals discretion is hard to live with even harder to live with it and article underscore name equals the virtue of discretion and author equals Lorraine Dastinandate equals 21 April 2023.